This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of our most important conversations that we had throughout this week. And Jason, safe to say, it definitely has been a somber week, a nation once again in crisis. We're still fighting back from the coronavirus pandemic, but now we've got another fight against injustice. In the aftermath of the death of African-American George Floyd, protests, rising civil unrest, we saw that throughout the week around the nation, reminding us once again, of the inequalities that exist in our society. And we looked at it through our Bloomberg lens, right? Talking with business, nonprofit, public sector leaders, and how the divide in our society has economic, business, market, and most importantly, societal implications. Well, it's crisis on crisis for sure. And I think one of the things we learned throughout the course of the week and having conversations with CEOs and other leaders was that you can't really separate the two. And Mm -hmm. I think what we have experienced over the past few months is a culmination, a a sad culmination in many ways of decades. And and I think some people would argue centuries of injustice and a lot of economic elements and economic disparities, maybe is a better way to say it, that have been exacerbated over the past few months and really laid bare. And once you see them, it's hard to look away. And there's a lot of hope out there. And we talked about it with a lot of people that maybe this is the moment where we start to make some changes. And one of the voices we all agreed that we needed to hear from was John Hope Bryant. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of the nonprofit Operation Hope. He created that in the aftermath of the 1992 LA riots. He's still working to help the disenfranchised, but he talked to us about reducing inequality, reducing the injustices in the United States. We talked to some other leaders who are dealing not only with this crisis, which is right in front of them, but the existing health crisis and the economic crisis that has been borne out owing to the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. Tim Ryan, we had a thoughtful conversation with him. I think he's the chair of PwC based Mm -hmm. up in Boston. He talked to us about not only what he's doing and how he is very methodically and I think very thoughtfully responding to his employees about what happened with George Floyd and the aftermath and the protests there, but also what getting back to work looks like because that also is important as we start to get some sense of normalcy, even though we know we're never going to be the same. And and one of the folks who's also thinking a lot about that is Candace Lee. She's Vanderbilt University's first female athletic director, and she's the first female African-American to lead an athletic department in the SEC, a very important uh, conference in the world of sports. So she talked to us about her role in basically caring for her athletes. Yes, so many important conversations. First up, though, we want to take you inside the magazine's cover story. It's on how radical repression is built into the U.S. economy and how 150 years after the Civil War, the color of money is still white. It's a provocative and thoughtful story. Here's more from economics editor Peter Coy. The truth is that the economics profession has had a hard time understanding race, racial discrimination. If you open a standard textbook, it'll tell you that workers earn the marginal product of their labor, i.e. the value they provide to the, the employer. It would make no sense to do anything else because if you paid somebody less than they were worth, they would go someplace else. Of course, that doesn't really describe the real world where we do see racial discrimination. So economists for decades have been struggling with how to explain it. And I go through various theories, uh, but come around to the idea that, you know, maybe it's nothing more complicated than the uh, 
white power structure paying people less because they can get away with paying people less and all kinds of other forms of discrimination against uh, African Americans and other racial minorities that just persist decade after decade. So how do we change things? Because as you put in your story, the greatest frustration is that nothing ever seems to change. I yeah. mean, this is not new. As you know, you're right, Jason. We talked to um, Frances Fry at, at um, Harvard, and she said, you know, 400 years we've been fighting racism. <laughs> so, you know, and even John Hope Bryan of Operation Hope, you know, yes, it's terrible what happened to George Floyd, but this shouldn't, you know, this happens a lot. So... So what do the economists say, Peter? You know, how, how do we make a change? What do we need in terms of maybe the new school of economic thought? I did not write a prescriptive story here. It was more of an analytical story. Like, okay. Like, like, let's just, I think the first step is to acknowledge that there's a problem. Yeah. I, I think, that, that, I think that, that actually is a good first step because there are a lot of white, except at times like this when it's pretty clear there's something deeply wrong, who will revert to the thinking that, uh, I think we pretty much put that behind us. They may have cordial relations with uh, their neighbors or, or people down the street or at work who uh, are of other races. They may see the success of uh, people here and there and conclude that the problem is, is solved. You need to stop and say, no, it's not. And then, until you do that, progress will not be made. And that's editor Joel Weber and economics editor Peter Coy talking about that story in the magazine. I have to say, Carol, I think both you and I, when we read it for the first time, probably stopped in our tracks because Peter is a beautiful writer. He's also someone who captures both the science and the art and the emotion effortlessly. And I think reading it, and understanding it was a very powerful exercise. No doubt. He wraps up his story saying um, these two lines, it just, they stuck with me. Whether all that anger will move America forward isn't so clear. And of course, he's talking about the civil unrest. He goes on to say, Peter, that is, what's clear is the need for the power structures of economics and business to grapple with life as it's lived, not as the textbooks specify. So, you know, economics in theory it's failing us at this time. And so we need to kind of figure out a different way to really tell the story that we're all living. Uh, Really provocative. And I highly recommend it's a must read for everyone. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we chat with PwC Chair Tim Ryan on how leaders should be thinking about the numerous crises they're facing. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had this week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. It was a difficult week, but one where we went deep with a lot of people to try and understand not just where we are, but where we may be going next. And Jason, we spoke with Tim Ryan. He's the chair at PwC. He's been having lots of conversations with CEOs and leaders all around the country. It was a really deep conversation, moved and impacted both you and I. And he talked about our world. It's being tested on multiple fronts and how we all need to be drivers of change. I look at it from two perspectives. And let me let me start off by saying PwC nor me do we have all the answers. But, but we look at it from two perspectives. For the last four years, we've been taking very aggressive steps to improve our inclusion with inside the four walls of PwC, and, and it starts at home. We, we all can be better, and we need to be better. 
and myself and over a thousand executives who are part of CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion, we have committed to make our organizations better, safer, more aware, and more understanding. But as you point out or ask in your question, policymaking also plays an important part. The reality is uh, that we need more thoughtful policy at the city, state, and federal level to make sure that we get some, uh, we get at some of the, the more important parts or equally important parts around inclusion if we're to get to better performance at a sustained level. So, for example, we think about the economic inequalities that exist in our country. Uh, policy, uh, the policy making plays an important role there as well. You know, it's interesting, Tim, to, to hear your response to the to the first question because it does feel like we're in a different moment where I dare say, and this is no judgment on any of your predecessors or any predecessors of current CEOs, but I have a hard time believing that in a previous generation of leaders, it would be almost acceptable in some ways for a leader of your stature to personally respond to all of those things. Do you feel like you bear more of a responsibility to show a level of transparency and, and I dare say authenticity to a broader spectrum of people? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. I, I, um, I certainly sincerely believe I have a responsibility to the 55,000 people who trust me with their leadership. And that, that is very personal to me. I was speaking with somebody over the weekend, or many, many people, and one conversation I, I asked, I said, do you think everybody's getting 3,000 emails? And I, I honestly don't know the answer. Yeah. What I am proud of is the culture is that, that people expect to have immediate access at PwC to the top. And I, and I take that responsibility very seriously. I think some of it's a sign of times. I think some of it is the culture of the organization. And, and when I look at those 3,000 emails, and, and over, and, that, and I'm behind today, to be clear, because I'm right. not going to message out today. But I think part part of it is many th- thousands just saying thank you. Like, thank you. I shot a video on Friday morning saying how sick I was. Uh, part of it is thank you for the commitment and leadership. But hundreds were here are suggestions. Yeah. And, and and we're going through them. Like, we, to think that in a in a world where leadership is is looked up to we don't have all the answers and i think part of it is part of it is we we need to get it at all levels in our organization one one of our black associates i spoke to today he has three years experience with us he he was both um he was both excited but also angry that society's not making more progress he said tim you need to listen to not only the views of partners and people in the middle and leadership roles you need to listen to our views as well I, I think it's I think it's incredibly important that we do that. I, I think today more than ever. Well, you know, going back to oh man, you just sent kind of chills down my spine. We spoke with John Hope Bryant, um, chairman and CEO of of um, Hope, and what's interesting is he said he was talking to a lot of young people, Tim, who said you know because everybody's like, please, you know, looting doesn't solve anything. But these young people said to him, listen, you get to be, you have a seat at the table. You know, you're in the room where it all happens. You go to the White House, you talk to CEOs. For us, our voices aren't heard unless we take these drastic actions. And we need to figure out a way to make sure everyone is heard. And, and I, Tim, I feel like we have a lot of conversations about this, and yet nothing happens. Yeah, I think, I think, um, it is really important for us to understand to our, our black and brown citizens of the United States 
What happened last Monday is not new. What happened in Central Park is not new. To many, it feels new because we saw it on a video. But it is not new. And, and as I speak with my, and I'm not black, I cannot say I've walked in people's shoes, but as I've listened to hundreds, what they will tell you is that this is not new. And four years ago, we had shootings in Dallas. We had violence in Louisville. Two years ago, we had violence in Charlottesville. We have it again, and it's incumbent on people in my role and other roles to say enough is enough, and we're going to fix it, and we have to work together to do that. So, Tim, I want to talk about the return to work. I just had one more question for you about sort of where we are at, at this particular moment having to do with protests. You've got curfews happening at major cities around the country, including here in the tri-state area. And I do wonder, how do you balance sort of the the safety of your employees with the notion that you want them to be able to express themselves at, at times like this? Yep. Um, we, we encourage our people to um, make sure their point of view is heard. Um, and, and protesting is an important part of expressing ourselves. We obviously want to make sure they're safe as well. So we've encouraged people to do that and use their best judgment in cities where we have had protests. We've used our nationwide security team to make sure we're checking up on people, that they're safe. We've had a few instances where we simply had to move people because they were in very closely affected areas. But freedom of speech and the ability to get your views heard both internally within the firm and outside is something that we think is really important. Obviously, we want it to be peaceful. We want our people to be safe. But getting our emotions out and getting our feelings out is important. And the numbers really speak to the importance of getting those views out and, and having voices heard. So it is a very important part of our nation and the freedom to get your view out there and, and something we're supportive of. That's Tim Ryan. He's the chair at PwC. And that's just scratching the surface, Jason. For a full interview, be sure to check out the Business Week Extra podcast. We talked about how work will not look like the way it was 12 to 13 weeks ago and certainly not the way it's done today. We really went a lot of places with him. Well, and it was interesting to hear his very personal response mm-hmm. and the way that he is engaging with his employees, even from a remote basis, on how they're feeling, how they're doing, how their work is going to be different, because you can't really separate all of these different things, all of these crises that we're facing. It's impacting who we are, how we work, and who we want to be. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Checkers CEO, Frances Allen, she tells us how the restaurant industry is forever changed. Named CEO of Checkers and Rallies in February, began her job working from home. You'll hear her story. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. Um, Of course, much of it on the news about the civic unrest that we've seen uh, in the last week, but we're also still dealing with the virus and industries trying to come back. Well, Carol, we caught up with Francis Allen. This was a conversation I was looking forward to in part because these are restaurants that uh, I have frequented throughout my life. She's the CEO of Checkers and Rallies. Those are drive-through restaurants. These are restaurants that have actually done okay through the pandemic, and she gave us a window into the restaurant industry, how it will never be the same post-pandemic. It's really been so um, rewarding to um, to work through 
this crisis with a with such a dedicated and resilient team of people. Uh, there's always a silver lining, right, in, in every crisis. And I think, uh, you know, usually it brings out the best of people. And I can certainly say that that's true for the Czechs and Raleigh's whole organization. Um, from a, uh, I'll, I'll start with the safety. Obviously, when, when we put a task force together to create a response plan, we had two priorities. The first priority was the safety of our guests and their employees. And the second was really to keep our restaurants open so we can continue to employ our team members and, and feed our guests. So I'm incredibly proud of the, of the operations team. We actually, as, as well as complying with all of the CDC mandates, both individual state and local government requirements, we've actually put in 15 new contactless experiences to protect our employees and our guests. Everything from... Um, plexiglass barriers at the windows, um, cashiers with uh, color-coded gloves for handling payments, um, uh, trays for handling payments, uh, infrared thermometers, obviously. Fortunately, we already did 15-minute hand washing, so um, you know we already had a very high standard of, of cleanliness. Um, you know, cup refills. We've always refilled people's cups, but now we'll still do that, but we'll, we'll give you a fresh cup. So uh, a ton of new um, uh, procedures at the restaurant, sanitation, obviously, to keep people safe. On people and labor, um, you know, obviously, our first priority is the employees who show up for work every day. And I'm so proud of them and what they've done and how they've kept going. We're fortunate in that we have not had to lay off anybody. We did furlough some people at the corporate office, but we were able to bring them back after 30 days. But we've been looking after our team members with sick leave, with closure pay, if the, if the restaurant has to close. And we've also instigated a thank you pay for those restaurant team members that, that have um, stayed with us through throughout this, um, this virus. Um, I'm very proud to say we also have a, a an employee relief fund. It was actually established in 2005 following the days of Hurricane Katrina and has provided more than $500,000 in assistance to about 600 employees and, and their families. And we've expanded that to, um, to obviously include anybody that can't work due to corona-related right. uh, issues. So a lot of, a lot of um, work put together to, uh, for our people, um, keep our guests and our employees safe. And then, of course, all the marketing shifts that, that uh, we need to, needed to make. So shifting really into free delivery, Meal bundles, um, social media, and uh, and just trying to stay very nimble and flexible. And that's Francis Allen, CEO of Checkers and Rallies Drive-In. And as you pointed out earlier in the show, this is someone who has a rich, deep <sighs> experience in this business. But she basically has like been to headquarters a couple times, but she doesn't really work there yet. She's been working from her home in Colorado, uh, managing this massive enterprise remotely and thinking about a lot of health and safety uh, issues as she thinks about 
reopening. Well, her perspective is an important one, Jason. QSR, Quick Service Restaurants, right? She has worked. She was CEO of Boston Market, president of Jack in the Box, also senior positions at Denny's, Dunkin' Donuts, USA. So when we want to understand this segment of the restaurant industry, she's really a great person to get some insight. One of the takeaways, more blurring of fast, casual, and drive through restaurants. And she said, you know what? You're going to love this, Jason. Get ready for more comfort food on the menu. I know. That was actually uh, really good to hear. I basically was like, well, what about healthy things? <laughs> And she said, you know what? Uh-uh. That's not exactly what people want. And I should correct something I said a few minutes ago. It really isn't about reopening for her. It's it's more yeah. the idea of they never really closed. How do they adjust going forward? And how does the industry around them adjust? That was a really important takeaway, too. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the role of sports in the age of COVID-19. A wonderful interview. We caught up with Candice Lee. She is the first female athletic director of Vanderbilt University, also first African-American woman to head an SEC athletic program. And I got to tell you, she says we all miss sports, and she's getting ready to try and open up. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. It was a week where I felt like every day, Carol, we were trying to get our heads around what was happening in the news that day, Mm -hmm. knowing that what's happening now is going to have a profound effect on where we are in the coming months and years. And that includes an interview with Candace Lee Jason. She's Vanderbilt University's first female athletic director. What's interesting is when we booked her, we thought, okay, we're going to talk about what's going on, you know, in terms of sports at the college level. You know, how do you, you know, run a program uh, in a world of COVID-19? And then, of course, that conversation was impacted as well by the news out of Minneapolis and the death of George Floyd. Oh, man. Um, I thought what what, what a tragedy that could have been and should have been avoided. And um, it was heartbreaking. It was very difficult to watch. I will admit that I have not been able to watch all, I know it's seven or eight minutes long. I have not made it through that entire video. I mean, I've seen, I've seen clips and um, it's traumatizing. So I I would say that, um, I mean, my reaction was the reaction of, I think so many of us that um, it was unnecessary. It was unnecessary. And Candace, you know, you have a responsibility, as so many do, to, you know, young people who are ultimately in your care. You know, you are catching them at an incredibly important and and formative age. How do you take what's going on uh, in the country and, and you think about your role being as important as it ever was, more important maybe than it ever was, as as you think about the the young folks that that you're trying to to counsel through all of this, we're all thinking about it uh, as parents. I know, and and obviously you see it through a different lens than I do. I like how you phrase the question because you're right that um it is it is the care of our student athletes that is our priority, and <clears throat> I think that in some ways. You, know, you feel helpless when you see a situation like this and you, you start racking your brain and you it, it stirs up a lot of emotions. And then I start thinking about how, not that I have a ton of experience, but if you, if you imagine being a college student and trying to process that and make sense of it, 
how intimidating and overwhelming that must be. And I think the thing that we have to do is just start with transparency and authenticity. Those are the things I talked with our student-athletes about um, over the weekend. Same with our staff. You know, it's a, it's a chance to, to really be vulnerable and wrestle with this together. I don't have all the answers, and, I, and I'm real clear about that, but I do want our student-athletes to understand that we can provide them with a safe space to explore how they're feeling, and we want to equip them with, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to make sense of something that's just tragic. It's hard to make mm-hmm. sense of that. But what I hope is that our student-athletes will feel like they can make a difference, like if they're convicted about this topic or anything that they're passionate about, that they'll use their platform to really affect change and do it in a healthy way. The thing I think that um, many of us wrestle with or many people wrestle with when you're just so heartbroken over something and, and it's hard to understand why people do certain things, how can you mobilize people to want to make a change but but not be so frustrated that you paralyze or, you know, not have a hard heart. Right. And, and and that's um I, I think that's a challenge for all of us, but I know that's a challenge when you're eighteen, nineteen, mm-hmm. twenty years old. And and you know, it's a privilege to be able to be with 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 folks when they're developing their ideas and they're building a foundation, but it's also a huge responsibility. You know, because they look to us. Right. You talked about the care. They look to us for that guidance. We want to pivot uh, to your plans uh, at Vanderbilt, but I have one last question. And I do wonder, Candace, what you think is the, res- the, the role and responsibility of, of sports, professional or collegiate, in terms of being an agent for change? Well, I think when you, when you look at the athletics platform, um, I, saw, I actually saw a tweet yesterday that and I'm sure I'm sure y'all saw this or other people were saying something similar, but it talked about if the world would treat each other the way people treat each other in a locker room, where mm-hmm. there are folks from all walks of life and um, different perspectives, but they're working toward a common goal. And uh, that really struck me because I think that when you when you look at athletics and you get on a team. I don't know that people are focused on race or geographical area or sexual orientation or they're they're working together to try to win. Right? They're competing on the same team with a common goal. And when I think about that and all the opportunities that have been created now, don't get me wrong, athletics has not been perfect in this space, so I I'm I'm certainly not saying that, but I do think that given the great widespread interest that there is in athletics and and the way that it allows you to cheer for the same thing without regard to those things that, that, that make us different, then I think it's kind of a natural thing to look at athletics in terms of uh, leadership when it comes to opportunities and, and to this equality and fairness, because that's mm. what sport is. Sport is about fairness. Right, right. And, and, and I, I, I think you've got to be careful here because I know that that doesn't mean that every athlete is a social activist. I I understand that. But the fact that sports is something that ties a lot of us together and brings people to to common spaces and allows them to interact where these same people might not might not be together if if it were not for a football game or a soccer match. And I think that that shows us that sport has the ability to be far-reaching. So I think with that, there's expectations, right, that maybe you can change people's minds or you can raise awareness about something. 
Well, and Candace, for all of those reasons that you just described, we are so collectively interested in seeing sports come back, especially college sports come back. I grew up down south. I have a lot of friends uh, who went to Vanderbilt and, and other SEC schools, and there is nothing. I don't have to tell you. There is nothing like SEC no. sports, and there is nothing like SEC college football. What? That's right. What's your best guess for, for what we see this fall? I've been really intentional about, about not trying to, to guess. Yeah. I can tell you that we're preparing to come back in the fall as scheduled. And, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to, to dodge your question. I think the reality is that this pandemic has taught us that um, as much as we think we're in control of things, we're, we're, we're very vulnerable. Right. And, and, and that's humbling, especially in athletics, because, you know, we're, we're very focused, we're very regimented, we're very structured. And, and I think there's a lot of humility that comes with knowing that you really don't know what the future holds. Having said that, I was on a call earlier today, and the point was made. I had not thought about this, but, you know, we've been in this mode for, you know, roughly 90 days. We still have a, a decent amount of time before we have to play our first football game. Right. And, and, and time is, is – is really important here because with each passing day and with each passing week, we learn a little bit more and with more data, you know, you feel armed to make better decisions. And I think that all of us desperately want sports back. It's a rallying cry. It ties communities together. We all, we all want something to cheer for. We all want to feel united and sports is a great way to do that. And I just think we we just have to be diligent about trying to resume activity in the safest way possible. You know, that's right. part of the care for the student-athletes that you all were talking about earlier. That's part of it, right? It's right. fundamental, their health and safety, and the health and safety of our community. So, you know, it's, so, um, it's challenging. <laughs> right, sure. Well, and, and Candace, it also feels like one of the challenges is going to be – protecting so many of the sports beyond college football, given the economic headwinds that uh, that athletic departments are, are going to face. I have to think you are thinking about that as well, given the upside down world we're living in potentially. And I'm not asking you to guess about this. You know, if we have, <laughs> you know, spectator list games, how are you sort of thinking about different ways that you can ensure that m- many uh, college college athletes still get a chance to, to play at a time when a lot of uh, schools are, are canceling programs. Oh, you're right. We're very, very dependent on the revenue that's tied to football. There's no question about that. There's no debating that. You have to look at each individual situation in terms of like how much a particular athletics department depends on revenue that's tied to tickets or concessions. or you know It varies by institution. Mm-hmm. What doesn't vary, though, is that we all need football. We all, we all need it. it to, to, it's the financial engine that drives everything. You know, and that's, that's just the way that it's structured. That's Vanderbilt University's first female athletic director, first African-American woman to head an SEC athletic program. Uh, Candace Lee, I got to say, I'm a big fan already. Uh, yeah, the Commodores, man. I mean, it's a really interesting <laughs> school. It's obviously a very prestigious university, plays an important role there in Nashville and in the South. And, you know, as you said earlier in the show, you know, we caught her at an interesting moment. You know, we went into this conversation, I think, when we originally had it on our calendars thinking, okay, cool, we're going to talk about what college football is going to be like right, and the right. role of student athletes. And, you know, I think that we're reminded 
every day of the interconnectedness of so many things. And, you know, having truly a trailblazer in Candace Lee take over that role at this moment uh, provided us some fascinating insights. And I've got to say, bottom line, they are preparing to come back in the fall. And then she also really stressed the importance, the role of sports at times of division. So that really stayed with me. All right. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We're going to continue to explore the political and economic aftermath of the civil unrest that we're seeing in our country right now. We're going to hear from John Hope Bryant. He's a guest we really wanted to speak to because of the work that he's doing with Operation Hope. We also take you to Topeka, Kansas. We talked to the mayor there. Her personal story is incredible. And the insights that she has on the ground about the protests, but also the coronavirus, they are riveting. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. Wide-ranging conversations, Mm -hmm. serious conversations, Carol, in many ways, and we hope thoughtful, you know, trying to explore with people where we are at this moment through, candidly, the Bloomberg lens. We're talking about economics. We're talking about business. We're talking about leadership in many ways as the country and we as not just humans, but we as business people try and get our arms around where we are and where we should go next. And Jason, the cover story in the magazine, really, a deep dive into the unrest and what's being impacted. Again, like you said, everything's connected, business, economics, society, the markets. And we use that in terms of all of our conversations this week. And that included one with Edelman founder and CEO Richard Edelman. He reminded us, businesses, they are our own best hope. You can't be anti-capitalism right now. Companies can make decisions with money and how they spend it to really bring about some significant change. And I think if there's a through line for this hour of the show, that's really it, that money and leadership are at the core of all of this. We heard from Frances Fry. She was, I'm going to say it, one of our favorite interviews of the week. She's a professor at Harvard Business School. She's got a new book that's called Unleashed. And really what it's about is looking at leadership from a completely different perspective. In a word, accountability, right? And she did it while looking at the companies of Uber and WeWork specifically, changing those toxic cultures for the better. And Carol, economics is at the core of the argument made by John Hope Bryant. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope down in Atlanta. He gave us a little bit of a history lesson, but also some very specific steps we need to be thinking about when it comes to being different on the other side of this. Consciousness is like a rubber band that is expanded. You know, it never returns to its original size. First of all, thank you and your colleagues for all that you do. Thanks for being a light on the heel in a moment of darkness. Uh, the media is playing an outsized role in our consciousness these days because some of our national leaders are not stepping up in a way that's holistic, that's bridge building, that's bringing us together, that's providing a light and a way forward. So thank you guys for doing that. Thank you. You know, again, a a rubber band that's expanded doesn't return to its original size. It's forever extended. And so when things like this happen, you you stop having black people saying, I feel discriminated against, and white people saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. As Will Smith said, racism did, did, did not get discovered. It got filmed. And now when something like this happens, it just becomes undeniable. It's like the people of, of goodwill, which are most people, just go, that's just, that's just ridiculous. Like, that's, that's disgusting. That, we can't, we can't, that's, not the, that's not our nation. That's not our, you know, what if that's my child? 
And mm-hmm. we start having a, a we conversation and not a me-you conversation. Uh, and then you can begin to do something about it. Uh, I Over the weekend, I've had a problem with the looting. And uh, Operation was founded in the, after the Rodney King riots in 1992, so this strikes me very close to home. Um, we're the largest what we do in the country because we responded differently to uh, the riot after it was over, decided to respond, not react. Uh, but this rioting and the looting, if that continues, we will destroy the moral authority that George Floyd's death gave us to honor his legacy. I was, you know, talking to some young people, and they said, John, you get to be at the table. You know, you, you get to talk to people. You get to do media. You get to go to the White House. You get to go, go you know, CEOs, offices, and so on. They listen to you. We've been, listen- we've been talking. My, my grandfather was talking. My father's been talking. I'm talking. They don't listen to us. No one listens to us until we tear some stuff up. So they said, look, we don't want to tear stuff up. It's primarily not us tearing stuff up. We've been infiltrated, so on and so forth. But when stuff gets torn up, it, people are actually listening to us. So now we can hand the baton back to you to go talk for us in these boardrooms and, and, and hopefully cut a deal to get me an internship to, to stop the poverty, stop, increase the peace, increase some legislation to get us some fairness. And I... I think that goes back to that Dr. King quote. He said that, that violence is the language of the unseen and the unheard. Dr. King wasn't endorsing violence. He was acknowledging mm. the pain. Well, and John, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Dr. King because you're there in Atlanta, and I think a lot of us saw your mayor, and, and I'm from Atlanta, as you know, and so I was paying very close attention, even closer attention to it, the legacy of Dr. King and, and the legacy of so many others, whether it's former Mayor Andy Young, whether it's obviously Congressman Lewis and so many others like you who are down there in Atlanta, which has, again, such a a rich legacy here. What have you learned and and what are we learning there that maybe we can take in in a broader sense? Because Mayor Bottoms, you know, spoke so passionately about that legacy. And and I wonder how that translates, especially to a business audience. Yeah, so that's a very good question. I think that this goes back, you know, by the way, things are calming down here, where things are popping off and heating up other places. We're starting to transition a bit here, and I think it's part in part because the mayor, who's a black woman, said, stop the looting, like you're not honoring our legacy. This is ridiculous. She She behaved like a parent, and a lot of our national leaders are not behaving like good parents. Then you had corporate leaders step up. And that's Operation Hope founder John Hope Bryant. Of the many favorite conversations we had this week, I have to say that one stood above, in part because we found ourselves, I think it's safe to say both of us, Carol, quoting him back to other people throughout the course. I sent him an email late in the week, basically saying that this notion that this is a crisis of poverty, this is a crisis of economics that we're facing. It's structural. It's not new. It's literally hundreds of years old and we have to face that if we're going to do anything about it well he's so right and he said what happened with george floyd yes obviously upsetting obviously wrong we know that but it's not new and he did say for companies for leaders you have to reimagine your budget where are you spending your ad dollars where are you putting you know efforts into internships where are they going and you need to think about the broader population you need to think about the minority population if you really want to bring about some changes because as you said and as he said this is about 
about poverty. It's about economics. That's how you make changes. And it's interesting, later on in the show, we're going to hear echoes of that when we hear from Richard Edelman, because Mm -hmm. he talks about the specific steps that he's going to take at his company. And you have to get down to brass tacks to really understand where we move forward. And that's part of the conversation we're going to have next with the mayor of Topeka, Kansas, Michelle De La Isla, on how her city is dealing with unrest and inequality. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Jason, a lot of our conversations revolved around the protests that have been happening in cities across the country this week, and that included in Topeka, Kansas. And we caught up with the mayor of Topeka, Kansas, Michelle De La Isla, who talked about the support she has given to the protesters and you know, talked about some of the division that we're seeing right now in her city as well as across the country. I loved her story. It's a very personal one. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder that mayors, they are on the front lines and they are human beings and they are citizens. Ultimately, the stories that she told us really emphasize that. Check this conversation out. Let's start with the history of the city. And Mm -hmm. the city of Topeka is the home of Brown B. Board. And I, I think it's one of the things that I'm extremely proud of and have seen our citizens speak up very loudly about the injustices that we have been seeing in our nation occur um, with regards to African-Americans being slaughtered, um, not only by, by the hands of, of, of regular citizens, but also by us seeing the death of George Floyd. Uh, that has left our community completely heartbroken. I, I think I shared a few days ago, I think it was last week, the days become hours and, and, and years, you know. But I remember uh, after seeing those events, I I shared with my community that I just cried myself to sleep. Mm. Um, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, George Floyd are just three of the examples of so many things that have happened in our communities that I know all too well. Because as soon as I became elected, we had um, the fatal shooting of a young man called Dominique White. Um, who later on was found to have a, a, a firearm on him. But regardless, it was the death of a young man um, who happened to be African-American, and, and we had our Caucasian officers in that situation. And our community all too well understands our community having an outcry and, and asking for action. Um, and it's been beautiful to see that the work that we have done in our community since then um, has started creating a, a positive ripple effect as Part of the protests that we've had in our community have been extremely peaceful with police involvement, so much so that I was privileged to bend my knee with my police chief side by side and having our police officers um, support a lot of the rallies that we've been having. However, we also had uh, just Monday, um, one of our peaceful protests have a secondary protest that became violent. So the same thing that is happening in the nation is happening here in Topeka, Kansas. So... I read, um, I was reading some press coverage of what's been going on in, in your in your city, and I believe something you said was, I think that people have a lot of anger, there's a lot of pent-up frustration in regard to the inequities that we've been having in this country. So the anger and the injustices we know, Mayor De La Isla, is not, they're not new, right? So how do we no, take this, and how do we take this and turn it into actions that make a difference, really make a difference? I mean, Brown v. Board is what, over 60 years ago? Over 65, um, I think that first the, thing, the first thing that we need to do is to be comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations. Um, I think that a lot of families and a lot of individuals, especially our, our Caucasian brothers and sisters, are 
very uncomfortable talking not about the glory of how our nation started, but we also will always want to focus on the glory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I talk to groups and I talk about inclusion, I always talk about how, yes, our country was built on the premise of liberty and um, freedom of expression and freedom of worship. However, in that same breath, um, people stopped and picked up my great-great-great-great-grandmother in Africa and decided to make her a slave based on the color of her skin. And we have never talked about those inequities that have been happening. And if we really want to see change, we need to start creating conversations and spaces in which we could talk about the origins of our country, the fact that we instill slavery just based on the color of skins of individuals, that we have deprived individuals from having access to success, and that still continues in these systems. But most importantly, once we have those real conversations, we have to follow them up by having people elected that can really make a change in these policies and making sure that people who feel disenfranchised actually vote. Um, It's imperative because we wouldn't be able to have these conversations if we wouldn't have people in office that now are able to have these conversations without wanting to hide from them. And if we want to see change, it has to start at the polls. It has to start with us being on board positions, with voting and with being engaged. So what have you seen over the last few days in, in any sort of change in tone or, or change in rhetoric that, that either gives you hope or you know, maybe gives you a, a little bit of pessimism? I, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to lean toward hope just based on a little bit of, the, uh, of your tone <laughs> and, and some of the things I've, I've seen you say, Mayor. So here is some, some examples of hope. When I first got elected that we had in our laps, the, the, the loss of Dominique White's uh, life, um, we, were, we were scared about having conversations on race. We were scared about standing up and saying, hey, we, we don't quite understand. Because I can tell you, as a woman of color, um, I, I do still have the sticker shock of walking into boardrooms where I'm the only person that I'm the only female and the only person of color sometimes in a position yeah. of leadership. But In my condition, the only bad experience that I had with a police officer was when my son, um, who has some severe persistent mental illness, was pulling his seatbelt off. And that was at the time before I was mayor or a person known in the community driving a beat-up Taurus with two kids in the back. And he pulled the seatbelt. And when I went to explain to the officer that I didn't have my seatbelt because I was doing the mama drive of telling my kid, get your seatbelt on, I get stopped, right? And instead of me having an opportunity to have any legal representation, I was told, hey, uh, just say nolo contendere uh, when you're in front of the judge, and it'll be fine. Um, so that's my only bad experience that I ever had. So I thought that's as worse as it gets, right? And all of a sudden, in 2017, I get immersed into this whole different perspective yeah. of what black men and women are dealing with in their communities, what other individuals who are socioeconomically disadvantaged were dealing with in our communities. And it was a state of shock, right. a state of pain. And that's Topeka Mayor Michelle De La Isla, a very important and I think strong voice in all of this, a reminder again that mayors, they are dealing with all aspects of this and hearing her talk about not just her personal experience in interactions with the police, but also the work that she's doing around the virus and helping to understand the front line of that battle as well. Uh, I really took a lot from this conversation. Well, she reminded us, Jason, that Brown v. Board, right? 
over 65 years ago happened in Topeka, right? So that they have been dealing with injustices and inequality. You know, it's just in the fabric of that city. What I loved about what she had to say is you have to get comfortable about being uncomfortable and you need to talk about the origins of our country to really understand what's going on and to bring about change. That really stayed with me. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Richard Edelman. He talks to us about what he's hearing from CEOs and what he's telling his own employees about both of the major crises we're facing, COVID and its aftermath, but also the death of George Floyd and what it means as leaders re-examine what companies they want to lead. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our Bloomberg Business Week radio show. We're here every day, 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Wall Street time and a complicated week, to say the least, Carol, a troubling week. But we brought, I think, some interesting conversations to bear as we all try and move forward. Well, yeah. I mean, Jason, companies, right, um, having their hands full, back-to-back crises. First the virus and now the civil unrest that's really shutting down cities again in reaction to the death of George Floyd. Richard Edelman is someone who is in constant communication with corporate leaders, really all leaders. He is the founder and CEO of the global communications firm Edelman, and he talked to us about What needs to change in the corporate community in order to really bring about change and get to those inequalities in our society? What happened is that um, this is more global. It's also more uh, across industries than we expected, um, into cars, energy. um, And then uh, on top of that, um, we had one major account shift, and that happens in our business. Um, But you know, we still have 5,300 people around the world, and um, we are going to run our business at break even for the next period of time because I want to keep as many people as we can. And we're a family business, so we can do that. Yeah. Well, and Richard, I have to say, and, and Carol and I have been talking about it sort of off air uh, as we've been prepping for this, you know, and uh, I, I don't often do this, but, you know, kudos to you for, for owning it. I mean, yeah. this is, it's Absolutely. a tough time. And, and I do think that, and, and I think that that leads us right into to the next thing we, we want to talk to you about, which is we seem to be at a moment, we talked a little bit about this last time, but I feel like it's become much sharper or coming to much sharper relief, which is leaders really need to speak to their own employees and speak to the public uh, even more candidly and even more forthrightly, not just about their own businesses, but about the issues of the day and and civil unrest and what it means and the deep injustices uh, and inequality that we're seeing here. Tell us about the conversations first you're having internally and then maybe expand to some of the folks that that you're talking to, as Carol said, the, the leaders in the world. Well, on Friday, we had um, our uh, community of people who were of color uh, on the phone, and one young man was talking about how he'd been apprehended by police unfairly, and another, you know, African-American woman has brothers, and she wonders whether they're going to come home at night, and, you know, it's just surreal, Um, and and I've made a commitment for Edelman that we're going to offer money for anybody who's a person who interested in vice president up to go on boards of local uh, NGOs um, that are actually serving um, in distressed communities. I think that's important. And also we're going to double our purchases from um, minority owned uh, small business, because again, I want to get people back to work. 
I think that's the key point in all of this. We can't have this be an anti-capitalism moment. You know, the idea of community versus capitalism is such a false choice. And I want people to recognize that business is the best hope here, not government. Um, and that um, if we can get stores in communities and training centers and, 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 and help people, you know, get skills, then, then we're going to really be much better off. This mirrors exactly what John Hope Bryant said to us at Operation Hope. And he said, ultimately, is you need to have companies, you know, speak with their with their money, with their dollars, what they decide to spend money on, whether it's minority-owned businesses, you know, as part of their supply chain, whether it's creating internships that provide jobs for minorities. He said, you know, this is a poverty problem. And that's how you, you know, Richard, ultimately fix it. Well, Carol, I love the idea of also recruiting at junior colleges, mm-hmm. primarily black colleges. You know, we can't just have the same universities be our feeders. And, you know, over time, um, we're going to be a majority-minority country. And that's who should be the uh, workforce. And we need to push and, and use this moment as a wake-up um, to, to, get, to get action. And, and the CEOs I'm talking to are totally on this. Yeah. Uh, they, they want to... Um, they want to be part of the solution. They feel deeply moved by what happened last week. They're disgusted by the uh, murder of that young man, and it's unacceptable. <clears throat> but they want to fix the underlying problems of uh, sickness and obesity and ill health and like this. That's Edelman founder and CEO Richard Edelman. And God, I really feel like, first of all, Jason, we talked to him because he had to let workers go as well after making some promises back in March that he didn't expect to do that. So he's dealing with all of this on a personal level as well and the responsibility of running a firm and kind of keeping it going in what's going to be possibly, you know, tougher economic times, but also got into, you know, the commitment of global leaders, what they need to be doing right now to bring about change, especially when we've got such a divided country. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Harvard Business School professor Frances Fry. She's very popular at the school. She's got a new book out. It's called Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. She was brought in to fix Uber and WeWork's toxic cultures. Man, I could have talked to her for hours. Oh, you're going to love this conversation because you just get a sense of she's got some stories. (laughs) This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week. We continue to talk, of course, about the big story, the virus and, you know, companies reopening, the economy reopening. But again, of course, all of that was overshadowed by the civic unrest that we saw in the country, um, in major cities, in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. Well, and it's putting leaders on the front foot and leaders in the spotlight. So we turn to Harvard Business School professor Francis Fry. This was one of these conversations, full confession, <laughs> that when we finished talking to her after 15 or 20 minutes, I thought, no, 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 no. Don't keep go. Going, keep going. Keep going. Don't go. <laughs> She's got a new book. It's called Unleash, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. The lessons, they are not obvious in many ways, and they are drawn on some pretty amazing experiences she has had personally. Right. She is not an ivory tower type. She's been in the trenches. And when I say trenches, we're talking Uber and WeWork. I think that there are great leaders. And then there are people that are not very good leaders. I think leadership can be taught. 
So for those that uh, for those leaders that aren't doing a good job, if they have the desire to get better, we can teach them. If they don't have the desire to get better, I'd wish for them to step aside. How do you teach them? Because these are these are tough people who are often in positions where they are, and you have run into some of them very directly, uh, who are very confident and uh, they know where they're going. I just finished uh, listening to a six-part podcast on WeWork, and uh, you know more about that story uh, than I do. But but I do wonder how do you break through to to people, or there's some who just can't be broken through. Well, I find that. It- if you can break through, it's usually either through emotion or logic. Hmm. And the lesson to be learned is that if someone is, if someone is like at an emotional level, no amount of logic is going to penetrate. And if someone is at a logical level, no amount of emotion is going to penetrate. So you have to see where they are and then bring either the moral or the rational argument to them. Um, I will tell you in my lifetime, I have met very few people that uh, didn't want to improve. Huh. Well, so, so okay, so take us back to you're hired, you're tapped to be Uber's first senior <laughs> VP of leadership and strategy. Uh, curious about the conversations to get you there. <laughs> and then you walk yeah. in the, and then you walk in the door and then what? So just take us back there. Yeah. So uh, I was asked to go by a former student to go and meet with the then CEO, Travis Kalnick. Um, and my first reaction was no, because I, like everyone else, had read the newspaper and said, I only like to help good people win. This does not seem like a good person, so no. And the student was said, um, I think he's a very good person. Uh, I think he's out of his depth on parts of the job. Will you do me a favor and come meet with him? And so I flew out to California. I was planning to meet with him for an hour, and I stayed for three days um, talking with him. And realized that this was a person who his last job, he had uh, led eight people. This company had gone through hyper growth. It now had between 10 and 15,000 people. So he totally needed help in leadership. But you know how I knew that? He said, I totally need help on leadership. And then on the strategy part, you know, he's like a mad genius in his mind, but it wasn't getting out into the minds of everyone in the organization. And so he asked me to help strategy, at least insofar as we could communicate it so that everyone was going off the same script. And then he said, you have full license to do whatever necessary. That was my conversation with him. And then I went and met with a lot of employees, taught a lot of them. I think I interacted with about 1,500 employees before I said yes, because I only like to help good people win. And if I didn't have the sense that this was overwhelmingly good people, I could never have gone to the organization. And I have to say, it was overwhelmingly good people. And you walked out of there feeling the same way? Oh, yeah. So, you know, nine months later, the culture was completely turned around. Everything that you read about in the culture back in 2017, none of that could happen today. Like, just literally none of it. And we had it, it we had it, none of it could have happened within nine months. Right. Um, and we, taught, we brought in the largest uh, executive education program I think, ever into a company. Um, and I've never met such willing learners. I love this notion that you talk about in the book, which is in some ways turning leadership on its head or at least broadening 
the or widening the aperture a bit because I think we we think so much about you know I'm the leader I'm the decider and you know it needs to be about me and I need to sort of have this command and, and control and you make a, a, a different argument I think help us understand your sort of rubric I guess for thinking about leadership yeah and I do make I think the exact opposite argument which oh, is that okay. So you're exactly right. No, as what you were saying. Oh, good. Okay. I was like, wow, I really misunderstood what you're saying. No, 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 no. I was giving, sorry, you couldn't see me. I was nodding vigorously. Okay. (laughs) So leadership is about making other people better. Like leadership fundamentally is about other people. And so the mistake that some people make is that they think their job is to be leaderly. And it's like they have a mirror in their office, and they keep looking in their mirror to see how they're doing. And you should really put a window in your office, because you should be spending all of your time seeing how other people are doing. And the a job of a leader is to make others better in their as a result of their presence and into their absence. And so I do think that it, it does really turn around what leadership is because it's not about the leader. In fact, our first chapter is called It's Not About You. Yeah. So how do you do that? Like, what does that look like in practice? When I walk into a meeting, if the most interesting person in the room to me is me, and I'm happiest when everyone else is looking at me, but if when I walk into a room... The most important people to me are everyone else in the room and my helping to set them up for success. And I will be looking super curiously and with all of my attention of how can I make you better? Like, what are the obstacles in the way? How can I get you to reach higher? How can I get you to, you know, develop more skills to do a better job? So it's really, it's, it's not self-distracted, it's other-distracted. We're just like sitting with this. Jason and I are looking at each other because this is pretty powerful. Um you know, apply it. And I wonder, how are you looking at what what you're saying right now and what you've just written in this book with what's going on in the world and what's been going on in the world yeah. for the last three months, the virus, first of all, and what's yeah. been kind of put front and center once again, those things that ail our society. We knew they were, they were there, yeah. but, you know, we're being confronted with it. And then certainly what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis? Yeah, so I'll start with George Floyd uh, that which is, you know, our country has been grappling with issues of race for, I don't know, close to 400 years, and we've never dealt with them. And um, I think that everyone, probably because we're all in COVID together and we're all breathing the same breath, everyone witnessed, it seems, at the same time, the death of a man because of the color of his skin. And this time, it has sparked collective reckoning um, and feels like at least the first moment in my life where we might be willing to change. Um, But what we know about change is you have to do three things if you're going to change. You have to honor the past. We've never done that regarding race. You have to have a clear and compelling change mandate. We have that right now. And you have to have a rigorous and optimistic way forward. And so I think great leaders will honor the past and we'll have an optimistic, a rigorous and optimistic way forward. And the same thing, and if that's like poignantly for George Floyd, it's also what's happened with COVID. You know, um, like I think you could line up great leaders, great world leaders from top to bottom and look at how well their countries are responding. And it's like a one-to-one, like great leadership is playing out on the world stage. We're all given the same conditions. Mm. It's just whether or not it's about 
setting others up for success or whether or not the leader thinks that leadership is all about them. It's like pretty straightforward. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're seeing that at companies too, right? I mean, we're seeing, you know, both in terms of COVID and in terms of the reaction to the, to the murder of George Floyd, you know, the, that exact same thing that it, it's all the same yeah. circumstances and, and granted there are little variables here and there about what type of company you run but but it seems like so much of it is ultimately about and we have these conversations all the time leaders being willing to to say something in, in many ways and it seems so yeah. simple and but it, i I'm, it, i feel like is, that gets lost it's like twitter versus facebook right now Oh, you know, those are two platforms. I just got on my first social media platform, and that's LinkedIn. I'm on neither Twitter nor Facebook. <laughs> I don't do well with distractions. And that's Harvard Business School professor Francis Fry. I will say, Carol, the other thing we realized was we've done a show at Harvard Business School, and we thought, man, we got to get her the next time we go up. She was so fun and so candid and really yeah. bringing some serious insights at a time where we really need them. You know what's interesting too? She talked about, especially in terms of the civic unrest and what's happening in terms of inequalities. Um, she talked about how our companies have been grappling with issues of race for 400 years. She reminded us that this has not been something that just popped up. It's obviously uh, been around for a long time. And she said, because of COVID-19, because all of us being at home, we're all witnessing the death of a black man at the same time. That's really powerful. And that's had a very, very big impact. And we do want you to hear this entire conversation. So check out our Business Week Extra podcast. We've actually got two this week, mm-hmm. one from Tim Ryan up at PwC and also this conversation with Francis Fry. It's a good one. She also said very few people who don't want to get better, which gives me some hope, some optimism, which I think is a really great way to wrap up our show. And that does wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe, everyone. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio with Carol and me live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And of course, you can always watch the show live on YouTube. Check it out. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.